I've been thinking about uh, what it is, uh, what it would be like for a church to have um, a discipleship culture. Let me say that differently. What would it be like if our church was um, a culture of discipleship? I'm not talking about a program. I'm talking about the entire culture so that when you come to a church, you just get sucked into the culture. About 10 years ago, uh, Joe Wirt over here, uh, he, he's a huge Notre Dame fan. He decides to take me to a Notre Dame game. They're playing Michigan. Excuse me if I swear for a moment. <laughs> I don't even like Notre Dame. There, I said it. I've outed myself. And so we go to this game, and he said, you got to go early. So I said, why? He just said, you'll see. So when I got there, we park out in the parking lot, and we walk by. Must have been a 1,000 people sitting out in the back of their trucks, and their beds are down, and they got their grills going on, and they're, they're having a party. Then we go through that thing, and we go into this. There's a bunch of games that you can play, throw the football and kick field goals, and everybody's wearing Notre Dame jerseys. And there's this massive crowd that is moving steadily toward the stadium. By the time we get there, he said, you got to see kind of the Hall of Fame. I'm like, Notre Dame Hall of Fame, that's an oxymoron. But he says, you, no, no, you have to, let me show you some of the stuff. So you walk in here and you see trophies and jerseys from way back when I was a kid, Eric Parsegian, you know, and all the, the, the good seasons and bad seasons. And I find myself actually starting to feel sorry for Notre Dame in the bad seasons because nobody's acting, everybody's just there for the game. And then after that, we get ready to go to the stadium. He goes, no, you don't just go to the stadium. You stand outside and you wait for the, for the players to come through. So if you, when you go, <laughs> you stand outside the gate of the stadium and all of a sudden, everybody parts like peasants for a king. And the players run through the fans into the stadium while the fans are just cheering and bowing. And, and I'm, I'm, I find myself starting to clap and wow, this is amazing. And then the game starts, and Notre Dame starts beating Michigan, and everyone's cheering, and I find myself going, well, I mean, I mean, they're college students. It's a good game. This is a fun game. And then I got in the car driving back, and I thought, what happened to me? <laughs> Some of you were saying, well, you got saved. <laughs> I, I started thinking, I got into that crowd. I got into the history, into the regalia, you know, of this tradition. And before I knew it, I was acting like an Irish. I went back and said, Lord, you almost lost me there. I started thinking, culture is a powerful thing. Sometimes we become something not because we're deciding to do it, but because we are with everybody else and everybody else is doing it. It's like a current in the ocean. 
It gives you a feeling of autonomy. So you can swim any direction you want to swim and think you're doing your own thing. But the truth is, while you're swimming that way, the current is going this way. And it's about five miles wide. You do anything you want. You have all the freedom in the world, but you're still going the way of the current. Culture is that way. It's a powerful force. You are influenced this morning by culture. I promise you. Some of you have deep passions about poverty, injustice, race, economy. You did not always have these passions. Most of them are right. But if they were right, why didn't you have them 10 years ago? Culture. Culture has elevated these subjects. And so we've elevated them. My point is not whether they're right or wrong. My point is how you got them. Where they came from. So I'm thinking, what would it be like to have a church that has a culture of learning Jesus? Struck, as I read Ephesians 4 a while ago, that phrase in verse 20 where he says, but you have not so learned Christ. For you were taught in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, to put off the old person which is made corrupt by its deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new person created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that phrase in verse 20, you have not so learned Christ, stood out to me. Go to any church around America right now, and there is a lot of emphasis on finding Christ, on accepting Christ, coming to Christ, believing in Christ, confessing Christ, sharing Christ. But Paul said, there is a place for learning Christ. That's the different culture. When you accept Christ or you come to Christ, you are making a conscious decision to submit your life to his control. But when you learn Christ, you are becoming more and more familiar with his ways and with his voice. When you confess Christ or when you share Christ, and you should, you are agreeing to a body of doctrines or truths about him. You're talking about him in public places, and you're talking about the difference that he's made in your life. But, but when you learn Christ, you are talking 
to him, not about him. And you're hearing from him. You're not just witnessing. And the things that you say in the week about the difference that he made in your life is not coming from something that happened back when you were saved. It came from a conversation this week. You said, I had a conversation with Jesus and he said, and so this is what I did and this is the difference that it made. It's an ongoing dialogue. See it? When you are learning Christ, you are changing your mind about things. They're saying, well, I used to think that was true, but it don't anymore. Why? Why'd you flip? Why? I, I, I had this conversation with Jesus. The world's all, woo. And you're like, I, I am convinced that this is his mind on this, and so I've changed my mind. Man, you should change your mind. You should change your mind unless you were born 100% right. I know most of you were, but a few weren't. So there should be changes. Do you see what I'm saying? This is a culture where people come and they go to school on Jesus. Now I'm asking myself, what would a church look like if the whole church was preoccupied with Jesus, where Jesus was the most famous person in the church, not the pastor, not the band, not some dignitary in the room that you work for. Jesus. What would a church be like if you heard his name more than any other name? Where he was famous and everybody else was equal. If we embraced failure, whenever you learn stuff, you fail. You try again. And we said, that's good. I'm glad you failed. Now you know what doesn't work. Let's try this. Do you see what I'm trying to describe? Or, yes, or do you see what I'm trying to describe? Oh, thank you, Jesus. It, this is a different kind. A couple observations before I draw pictures. One is that... Uh, what Paul said in uh, Ephesians 4.20, you have not so learned Christ. I mean, we can argue about this later, the who, people who care about language. Um, but my premise is that he meant what he said, and he said what he meant. Jesus is not the subject. He's the curriculum. And most translations miss this. The NIV, which Dave just read, said, you have not so learned about Christ. They stuck the word about in there because we as Americans don't even have language for this. But what you are learning is not a list of things. You're learning a person. He is the course. Two, 
This is a process. This is not a moment. You turn to Christ and you are saved. You find him. You believe in him. You accept him, whatever language you prefer. But the learning Christ is an ongoing process and it's not automatic. No, I wish I would have been told this a while ago. Because I figured I was saved by grace. And so grace did everything. I just had to get out of its way. But what I'm hearing in Paul is that there is a structure and there's a process involved in learning the nature of Jesus. Doesn't come automatic. Third, it involves putting off and putting on. The process of learning Christ is a process of unlearning things that you learned and learning other things in their place. It's a process of undoing things and doing other things. Uh, of unbecoming or unpracticing and then practicing other things. And so, so, so typical, like when the morning starts, I'll sit down with the Lord and I'll say, now what meetings and responsibilities or conversations am I going to have today and what is my nature? What is my default? What am I likely to do given my dispositions and my, my tendencies, my inclinations, my, my attitude? And how much of this is unbecoming of Christ? And so today, I'm asking you in the heat of the moment, I've been praying about this moment right here, that you would mute those things that are not like Christ and bring other things to the surface that are like Christ. So even if I do them by accident, I recognize them. And I say, that's what I'm trying to do. You see what I'm saying? I'm trying to let go of things that are not like him and I'm trying to put on things that are like him and I suggest we don't even have a curriculum for this. Paul gave us examples. Therefore, he said, put off lying or speaking untruth and put on speaking truthfully one with another. Put off an angry disposition and put on the garment of joy. Put off stealing and put on using your hands so that you can help people hard and neat. Put off a spirit of bitterness and gossip and slander so when you catch yourself going, she said, what? Put it off. And put on, he said, language that builds the body up. See, if I ask you what is the plan of salvation, y'all could tell me the four spiritual laws. But can you tell me a plan for putting off slander and putting on righteous speech? Do you have a program for that? Do you see what I mean? We can hardly even speak the language, we don't even have the structure yet. 
You still leaning in? I am. Fortunately, in my own journey, I am not alone. Now I draw pictures. I'm going to write four words up here. And you can write them down or you can remember them. There, four words. One is vision. Uh, this process of learning Jesus begins when I catch a vision for the way my life could be. What is the good life? Who really has it made? What is it like to live in the kingdom of God? Now, if you think about it, most talk in church today is about getting over stuff or avoiding stuff. It's not about moving towards stuff. So what I need is a vision of what I'm trying to become, not a list of things that I'm trying to avoid. Still with me? The vision then leads to a commitment that I make inside of me. Commitments that stick have the following qualities. Number one, they are self-imposed. They're not imposed by somebody else. And so the way we've designed our services is we stand up here and we try to tell you at the end of the service the commitment y'all should make. And like good members, you make that commitment. Nine times out of ten, it will not stick because the vision is coming from outside of you. It's not coming from inside of you. The, the vision has to be internal, not I should. This is why 90% of the half million people who have open heart surgery this year will not get better. Because what it takes is a change in lifestyle and a change in their behavior and their diet and their exercise. And the reason that they're changing right now is a doctor, a spouse, or a heart attack said, you should quit. But when it's internal, the second thing, commitments that stick are made to the input, not the outcome. One doesn't commit to losing weight. You commit to more exercise. You commit to a different diet. One doesn't commit to being like Jesus. We don't even know what that is. They commit to practices that lead to being like Jesus. I came home from a run yesterday, and a lady and my wife and I were talking, and a lady said to me, she said, you know, oh man, you just got to, man, you know, she said, I need to get in shape. I said, maybe you just need to run. See, that's why I don't counsel. I ain't good at it. Lori goes, do you always have to preach? <laughs> <laughs> 
Emily got a sign in her office that says, everybody wants a revelation or a revolution. Nobody wants to do the dishes. Here's one. Everybody wants to be like Jesus. Nobody wants to read the Bible. Everybody wants communion with God. Nobody want to pray more than five minutes. So you don't commit to some ethereal thing. You commit to a specific habit that comes from inside of you, not from somebody else's suggestion. And the third one then leads to the next component. Commitments that stick are always made in company with other people. You always bring other people into that conversation. Now, if you're like me, you're an introvert, so you'll sit in the fourth row, or in my case, the last row, and when the end of the sermon is done, you'll think, you know what, I really need to make this decision. And they're saying, you know, you need to tell somebody or come forward, and introverts are always thinking, I can handle my business in private. And we stay to ourselves. It's a formula for failure. Because when you let other people into your life, the thing that you are doing is the, the thing you need. It's accountability. It's the accountability of telling somebody. The group that you're part of then is part of a larger body. The problem with uh, small groups, we have about 40 or 50 of them in our church, is that they can become cloisters where like people talk in like ways all the time. And so they become social groups. They become political conversations. They become therapy groups. Someone's got an issue. Ten people advise. But they become like themselves. It becomes an echo chamber where we always hear our own ideas. The beauty about the body of Christ is its diversity. The body of Christ is the one place on earth where the person you least like always is. And if they die, a worse one will take their place. It is in fact the dissonance in the body that creates this wonderful tension then the body of course shares in the vision now this seemed pretty obvious to you right let me tell you why i think people get stuck they get stuck because for starters the vision that we often hear about is not a vision for christ likeness it's not a vision for learning Christ. It's a vision for accepting Christ. Paul said like this, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you may come to know the hope to which you have been called. I pray that you would know the inheritance that you belong to and the power that is at work within you. Paul said, I pray that you will live lives worthy of God so that you would be strengthened by his power so you would be able to endure and have patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of light. Paul said that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and depth of insight so that you may come to know what is best and be pure and blameless, producing a harvest of righteousness. Do you see the vision? Do you hear the vision in those words? Man, that ain't gobbledygook. That is, do you have a plan for that? Does there a plan in your life right now to say, how do I grow in my love that it may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight? The first breakdown then is when people will hear a vision, but they will not make a commitment. What happens is they'll come to a worship service or church in the morning where I hope worship is always painting a vision. It's in the music, it's in the message, it's in the hallways, it's in your classes. Somebody is telling us a picture of the way life could be, but what will happen is we will come to a service and sit in back, and then we will get in our cars and drive away, and the first question we hear is, what did you think about the service today? Here's the answer. Who cares what you thought about the service today? The service is not a piece of art. We don't come to a service and lean back like we're in an art museum and go, oh, what do you think about that? Oh, I like that. Well, I don't know why they did that. Well, let's go eat. No, no, that's called a performance. That's called a concert with a speaker. But worship is participation. It involves getting ready on Saturday night. Tomorrow is Sunday. We're all going to go plug in. God is going to say something tomorrow through somebody in the hallway or in the class. And I can't wait to hear it. There's an anticipation involved in worship. There's a participation. We don't just stand and wait for the music to end. Some of you said, well, I don't ever like to sing because I don't know how to sing. Well, it's not you that's singing. It's the church that's singing. Sing, church. So even if you can't sing, just mouth the words. Oh, God, our help. You'll be rapping while we're all singing. (laughs) But you move. You play. It's the, first, it's the first half of what's going on. Are you with me? And it's a moment where we present something to God in worship. It's not something, there's always talk about, well, what was the takeaway? Well, what was the leave behind? It's not what did I take away? It's what did I lay down? What did I leave on the altar? What did I let go of that I'm not going to do anymore? That's the function of worship. Mm. It occurred to me one time that we uh, cannot make commitments because we don't know how to do it. Here's where we've been wrong. I've done it my whole life, and I think it's jacked up now. I might change my mind, but right now I think it's messed. 
I think we finish every service by telling you what you should commit to. And when we do that, the commitments are always external. And so they're short-lived. It's a better process for us to teach you how to make commitments on your own. Here's how we do it. Four questions. I'm not going to pause. I'm just going to list them. When the service is over, I guarantee most of the time you'll get something if you do it like this. You ask yourself, one, what did God say? What did I hear God say? Two, what keeps me from doing that? You'll list obstacles, deficiencies, relationships, habits, any number of things. What keeps me from doing what I heard God say? Three, if I were to do it, what would be the first step? What's the next thing in that direction? And four, who am I going to tell? Or who is going to help me? Are you with me? Now watch what this does. It immediately sends your commitment into the body or into the community. The reason you go to a community into a small group is to, is, is to ask them, this is what I heard God say. Am I right? I could be wrong about this. Or I'm pretty sure I'm right, but I don't have a clue how to make this happen. Can you help me design next steps? Are you still tracking? Yes? Finally, the community is like a small group. The small group not only models the thing I just committed to, so I can see what it looks like when everybody's doing it, it also holds me accountable for doing it. But as I said, the problem with small groups is that they can become ingrown. They can become echo chambers. And so ultimately, a small group belongs to the larger body, which is far more diverse, and it bears a public witness to the world. I'm in a group of about 10 or 12 people. It's not big enough to make a difference in Marion. But when you immerse our 10 or 12 people into a congregation of 1,500 that are not all the same, now we can make a dent. So part of being in a small community is letting it be owned by the larger community. Are you still with me? So what do I want? That's up to you. My job this morning is not to tell you what you should do next. My job is to say, in this church, we are providing different opportunities for you to grow spiritually. Let me give you four things you can do. One is an hour of worship. But you'll have to worship differently, probably. It will no longer be performance. It will be participation. Two is an hour 
of spiritual formation or discipleship. We have 40 to 50 small groups, about five or 600 people in them. If you are not in a small group or class, you need to get in one. Because that's where you process what you just heard in the vision. Okay? But again, we need to get things out of our small groups that we are not presently getting in all of them. Too many of our small groups are too social and not enough transformational. The purpose of small groups is to hold us accountable to the things we are committing to. Three is an hour of service to the larger body. Some of you come and stand at doors. Some of you lead classes. Some of you serve coffee. Some of you clean things up when other people spill coffee. Some of you are on the worship team. Some of you are in the ushers. There's any number of things that happen on a Sunday morning when the body gathers that so many of you are involved in. It's one of the ways that you grow because you're serving or shepherding somebody else. You're taking responsibility for somebody else's spiritual life, not just yours. And four, an hour of public witness. It'd be great someday, if you're not already doing it, to give one hour a week in the city of Marion. Otherwise, we become a colony, like the village, a neighborhood. But what transforms the city, and that is our calling, what transforms the city is when people take what they got and they carry it out. So you might, you might think, what would it look like if we started to serve out there some of you are involved in Kids Hope. Some serve on task forces. Some just go out and witness. I know some of you canvas. You do door-to-door. Some of you pray for neighborhoods. Any number of ways we do this, but it's an hour of service out there. What I know is that God has, uh, a long time ago, church, given me a desire to shape a congregation so that learning Jesus is just the way we do it here. So if you come to our church and you don't even try to grow, you grow anyway. You can't help it. You find yourself like a Michigan fan in Notre Dame, just going, I don't know what's happening to me. I'm just getting carried away. I think I have all this freedom and autonomy, and without even trying, this body is just carrying me straight into the behavior of Jesus. Some of you already said that. You said, I walked in the door. I don't know what it was. It was something strange, but there was something happening in this room. I couldn't identify it. They said, you know what it is? (laughs) I do today. It's a culture that God is building in our community. I wonder if um, if you would stand with me and allow me to read a prayer from Paul over you.
hear these words of Paul to College Church. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you might be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I keep asking God, the glorious Father, that he would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of your present inheritance and his incomparably great power for us who believe. I want you to sing back.